Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the perseverance of the soul. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now as we continue our worshiping of you uh, through the preaching of your word, through the listening of it, and through the application of it to our lives. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, today's passage, this is one of those passages that... um, it's difficult. It's, 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 it's one that has a tendency to, to bring some uh, healthy debate in Christian circles over some significant theological issues. Uh, normally the debate goes about a Christian, can they lose their salvation? Um, I don't want to get too wrapped up in the argument. I want to stay sort of in the text and allow the text to speak and deal with some of these things as they come up. Um, and I think the best way to do this is to sort of uh, to, to keep the context in mind. Last week, uh, chapter 10, verse 19, we, we were at the fulcrum of, of Hebrews. This is the, the tipping point. Um, this, uh, this was the beginning of the second half of Hebrews. If you were to outline Hebrews in its most basic form, you would say Hebrews 1, 1 to chapter 10, verse 18 is information in large part. And then chapter 10, verse 19, to chapter 13, verse 25, I think there's 25 verses, is application. Is the, Based on the truth, the doctrine, the information that was received, this then, therefore, is how we're to live our lives. This is how we're supposed to apply the information that we've received. Last week, there were two senses. Since in the plural, there were 
verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So that's a truth. That's sort of a, a summary, I think, of the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than everything. And ultimately, the greatest thing that he did for us was his sacrifice. That on the cross, his blood was shed. It was sufficient. He was our substitute. And through that work, we now have confidence. I don't think this is necessarily confidence in our emotional sort of uh, faculties that like, hey, I'm really confident. I can just boldly go in there. I think what he's saying is you have access. We have access. If you're in Christ, you have confidence that you can enter the holiest of holies, Uh, the place where Jesus presently is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he also says, since number two, this Jesus who shed his blood for us, he is a great high priest who is taking care of the Father's house in heaven. Because of these two truths, he gives us three uh, lettuces, not not a head of lettuce. But there are three, three things that we're still sort of in today that are applications of those two truths. The the first one, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So since we have confidence, verse 19, based on the blood of Christ to then enter into the holiest of holies, he's saying, let us go ahead and enter into God's presence. Let us seek him. We have this relationship. Verse 23, the second lettuce was basically maintain your confidence. Don't, um, don't, uh, don't, don't waver on the confession, the jugular vein of Christianity. As persecution came upon the church, there was a temptation to drift away. But he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The confession is that the gospel, that Jesus died according to scriptures for our sins that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave according to the scriptures. And so this is our hope. This is everything. It's, it is the, the, the irreducible uh, minimum of Christianity is the gospel, is that Jesus died on our behalf, and in him we have life. And he's saying, don't waver on this point. No matter how much persecution comes your way, which we'll look at briefly today, don't give way on this point. Because God who said that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient, that it was good once and for all, don't give up hope because God is faithful. The final lettuce is in verse 24, which was an interesting one for me at least. Let us consider, consider how to stimulate one another. And he gave a few things about this. this uh, consider how to stimulate one another. He said, let us love one another uh, to love and good deeds. Um, let us not neglect our assembling with one another where we can encourage one another. The word stimulate is only used two times in the whole of the New Testament. The other time is in Acts 15 where we see Paul and Barnabas getting this huge argument and it said that they had this great division amongst themselves and they parted ways. That word for great division is exactly this word to stimulate. And so when we look at this word, and how it's used, the best way to understand this is like we need to, our, our role as Christians with one another is to, to kick each other in the pants, to fire each other up, to, to, to encourage one another to walk the walk and to continue uh, moving down this road. Um, 
We do this by encouraging, kicking each other in the pants, firing each other up to love one another, uh, to fire each other up in doing good deeds, to fire each other up in gathering with one another where we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day of the Lord appearing. Like he's coming, we're to be ready. And it's from this context that this fourth warning is found in Hebrews. Hebrews has lots of warnings. We see the first one in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, um, oh, great, now I'm blanking. Let us not uh, uh, drift. The warning is to drift. So let us hear. Now I've got to go back there. See, my, my, my mind, uh, my Bible memory is failing on me. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift from it. In chapter 3, we're warned, don't let your hearts get hardened. If you hear the word of the Lord, listen. In chapter 4, he talks about the Sabbath rest. Let Let us enjoy this rest that we have. Don't neglect the rest that Jesus has provided for us. And so now here this warning is given. And as we enter into the warning, I want to remind us or show us where we're going. In verse 39, verse 39 outlines today's context. It says, but we are not those who shrink back to destruction. Verses 26 to 31 deal with this warning about shrinking back to destruction. Verses 32 through 39 is the other half of verse 39. But of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. And so there's this this admonition. It all falls under the category of let us consider how to stimulate one another to love good deeds and encourage one another in the body. I still think we're within that setting. This is the the beginning of his encouragement for us to live by faith found in chapter 11, building all the way to chapter 12, verse 1, where we read, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the whole purpose of today's message is to fire us up to help us to continue moving forward in our relationship with Jesus, regardless of the persecution that may come our way. Uh, persecution or fears. In this case, there was real persecution. Uh, people were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, and he's saying, don't don't give up just because persecution's coming. Hold the course. And so we enter verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. So this is about as, uh, you know, the fire and brimstone sermon, this, this, like, this is where they get that from. There's like fire and brimstone. This is a severe warning. In addressing this, I want to sort of um, not so much preach it, you guys. I want to help us think through this. I, uh, part of the reason we go book by book is as we go book by book, you should be learning how to read your Bible and you, you stumble a, a, across things like this that are difficult, that it might be difficult for us to understand. And so to, uh, for us, my aim is that we would learn how to um, wrestle through these. I want to teach you how to cook, not just how to eat, that you would be able to handle the word of God on your own. And so we come to this, 
this passage and, and what I've done in my mind when I see this dire warning is I've sort of kind of categorized some things. We, we see this sin. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a war, there's a warning. There's a sin that's addressed that is about the, the warning. There's this, who is he talking to? And so I want to take this passage in sort of categories. The, the first is this willfully sinning. What, what sin is he talking about? Um, this willfully sinning is highlighted, even in the Greek, the very first word in the sentence is willfully, which is adding sort of a punch to the emphasis. He, he wants the reader to understand that this is something that the follower or, or the individual that they're willfully doing a certain sin. And so what, what can we find out about this sin? If we look at verse 26, willfully, after receiving the knowledge of truth, so there's this idea that the individual has received the truth, I believe the gospel. They've heard that Jesus died for them. Um, there seems to be an indication that they've responded at some level. But after receiving this knowledge, then they do something. And to find this out, we have to sort of jump down to verse Uh, 29. In verse 29, we see midway through, um, how much more do you think that he will deserve who has trampled uh, underfoot the Son of God? So the willful sin, we're dealing with the Son of God, we're talking about Jesus, and the individual who after receiving uh, an awareness of the gospel, he's taken the name of Jesus, and he's put him on the ground, and he's trampled over him. Jesus talks about this, this idea in uh, one of his parables that, that salt, when it becomes useless, you might as well just throw it on the ground and walk because it's not valuable for seasoning. It's not valuable for pre- preservation. Um, it's useless. You see the same idea of a, of a pig walking over uh, pearls or, and useless. So this individual willfully is taking the name of Jesus or the person of Jesus, and they're saying he's garbage. I'm just going to trample over his name. He continues, and he says that he's regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant. Throughout all of Hebrews, we've seen that he's made the case, Jesus' sacrifice was good once and for all. His blood is sufficient to cleanse us, not only externally, but to the, the deepest part of who we are, that our consciences could be clean through the blood of Christ. And so this individual that's willfully sinning, is saying that Jesus' work on the cross, the blood that he shed, is useless. It's unclean. It's of no value to anybody. We see also that he says that he has insulted the Spirit, and the Spirit is defined as the Spirit of grace. I think first off, just to point out as a side note, that the Holy Spirit is not an it. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a person. It's a part of the the Godhead. Uh, Only persons get insulted. It's don't get insulted. And so we see that by doing this, you're actually insulting the Spirit of God, which is full of grace. Alistair Begg, on this point, he, um, he uses the illustration of an army guy that has a hard time one day, and the guy wakes up, it's time to go to breakfast, get dressed, do all this stuff, and the guy's like, I'm just kind of sick of the army. <laughs> I think I'm going to move on with my life. I don't think I can do this day. And so he misses breakfast and then he misses the first appointment that he's supposed to go to. Finally, his buddy comes and says, hey, man, like you've missed breakfast. You're missing our thing. Like, get your, uh, the buddy says, I don't feel like going. 
He says, get out of there. Get your clothes on. Get your uniform on. Come on, you're going. And the guy puts on his uniform, and he goes, and he paints this picture that, uh, that we in the Christian life, we all have ups and downs. We have days when it's like, I just, your flesh is stronger. You're struggling. You're, you're battling something. You just start, you're struggling. We all go through that. But then he says there's the other guy who takes all of his uniforms. He takes everything that he has from the army he's ever been issued. He takes it out, puts it in a pile, pours gasoline on it, lights the match, burns it all up, and goes the other direction. This guy has defected from the army. He is done with the army. He wants no more. And he paints a picture that this individual, what we're talking about, this is a person who has come into contact with Jesus, and he's full-blown defection. This is apostasy at its, at, at its greatest level. He's abandoning the once and for all gift, this gift that Jesus gave on, for us that we might have life in him. He's walking away from it. And so as we work our way through these first uh, five verses or so, we see this willful sinning that's identified, and then there's warnings about this. Um, he says, for if we, go, if we go on sinning, back in verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So there's a warning. If you depart from Jesus, there's no more offering available to you. There, there's nowhere else you can go. Jesus is the only place that offers true salvation. And so if you depart from Jesus, you're, you're walking into something that doesn't offer salvation. You can't go anywhere else. Um, he says, if you walk away, um, where am I at? Down in verse uh, 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He says, if you walk away, what you can expect is this terror of the wrath of God. A few years ago, we went through Romans and and as I go through this verse, I'm reminded of Romans uh, f- chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, which reads, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so what we're saved from is the wrath of God. Our sin requires God's wrath. And I remember when we went through this, and as I've been thinking about it, I shared a story of probably one of the more embarrassing times of my life. as eh, embarrassing, but it was, I would have done it all over again if I... So my platoon, we were up in um, Santa Barbara, and we were, up at the, we were going out to sea at the oil platforms, and we were practicing learning how to take over go-plats, gas and oil platforms. And on the second day, the swell had gotten so big, there were 20 to, there was like 20 to 25-foot swells and it got to the point where the oil rig's like, we got to shut this down. This is too dangerous. And so we just need to get you guys um, to the shore. And then if the swell dies down, we can resume training. But Chevron wasn't willing to take, the, take on the liability of us at that point. And so we went, to, the, we went to, the, the, to Santa Barbara, to our hotel room. All of our gear was out on the platforms. There was no work that we could do. And so a bunch of guys were like, hey, I'm going to State Street. I'm like... This is like the this is like the greatest swell in 20 years. I'm going surfing, and I but I didn't have my surfboard, so I ran to the closest surf shop and found a used surfboard that wasn't quite long enough. Um, without going into all the surfing things, when it gets really big, you need a really long board to propel you. Um, so I got kind of like one that was less than ideal, and I we 
the guys are like, I'm not surfing, but I'll watch you go out in this. So I'm like, hey, okay, I don't mind. This is like, I've been dreaming about this since I was a kid. Because when Rincon breaks from West Swell, it's the most beautiful, it's like pipeline, and there's no surfers in here. So you're, yeah, I don't, it's like, this is what young men dream about, like surfing. And so I grab the board, and I can see that the whole one, the freeway along Rincon there is just lined with cars, people, surfer magazine, guys with cameras. I hop in and I paddle out. I get about three quarters of the way out and I realize that I'm in trouble because this surfboard is not long enough to propel me in the way I need to be propelled. And so I catch a wave, I go in and I'm like, I'm not paddling. I'm like midway. I'm not paddling back out. I'm going to have to come in. And there was a group of about five guys. I'm like, hey, what's the situation here? Because now I'm pushed south. The beach is like a, a half a mile that way. What are my options for getting in? And they're like, you got two options. You could either go straight in for the rocks or there's a river that flows from north to south from the rocks. There's all the water coming in. It'll push you. And you could ride that down about, it's about two miles or three miles down to the, there's a little fake island where they receive all the oil. They're like, you can go down there. There's a beach down there and you can make your way out. So young, whatever, 20-something gunners, like five-mile walk or just like, I can make it through the rocks, no big deal. So I'm like sitting there tired. I can see the eyes in the crowd. They're like, oh man, this is going to be good. Let's watch this. This is going to be the most entertaining thing. And so I quickly paddle. I jump onto the rocks. I throw the board away and I find this big rock and I just totally cover myself as this probably like a 15-foot wave was coming. And I was like, this is going to be so bad, but there's nothing I could do at this point. And I was just engulfed in water. I'm sure to the crowd I disappeared. But I was so sheltered by the rock. Like nothing happened to me. It was like, this is amazing. And then as soon as the water went away, I could hear the crowd go, ah, and I just ran the rest of the way. They're like, hey, you're bored. I'm like, I don't really care about that board anymore. I'm good. I'm like going to walk back. And I got out of there as quickly as I could. And the reason I tell the story is that rock is very much like Jesus, who is our rock. And if you're with him, there's security, there's safety, there's protection from the wrath of God that has deserved us. And I think that the warning that's given here is if you depart from him, you're walking away from the only protection that you have. And he's not trying to scare you. He's trying to compel us. Don't walk away from Jesus. Verse 31, for it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is good to have a healthy fear of God. God is the creator. God is holy. God is, to enter into his presence is a, is a terrifying thing. And, and we're told that through the blood of Christ, we have access, confidence, verse 19 of chapter 10, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. But don't lose sight of how holy God is. When I read this verse, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In the U.S. history in 1740s, I think it was like 1740 to like 1743. Uh, we had a huge revival. I don't know. If, I mean, we call it American history, but America didn't really wasn't really a nation at that point yet. But we had what's called the Great Awakening, and it was a huge time of re- revival in the United States. And in the midst of it, one of the the sermons that kicked it all off was this sermon by Jonathan Edwards in July of I, I have wrote it down here, July of 1741. He preached this sermon for his second time called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
He'd already preached it once at his church, and he preached, like, he, he, he read his sermons, and he was very just sort of, like, soft-spoken, monotone. And so he read it to his congregation, and he, at the end of church, I was like, brother, that was a great sermon. See you later. See you next week. I'm going to go to get some lunch and whatever. Didn't really do much in his church. But during this time, when they were going to execute people, it was a very, it was a public execution. And one of the pieces of the puzzle of the execution was they would allow pastors to come and preach a sermon to these guys literally as they had a noose around their neck or they were going to be burned at the stake or whatever they were going to do to him. The, the pastor was allowed to preach a message of the gospel to, to give the individual some hope, to hopefully allow them to get right with God before their lives were taken. And so Jonathan Edwards was allowed to go preach this sermon to these individuals. And as he stood there and just read his manuscript, what we would consider very boring preaching, the crowd was so moved that this fire of the Great Awakening, it was a huge thing that happened. And in his sermon, what he describes is that there's a spider dangling from one spider web and the spider dangles over this all-consuming fire. And then he relates that spider to us before God, that this one little web, all we have is God's grace. And it's by faith that we're spared. And it so impacted the people. And when I read this writing, as he's ending this warning section, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God I think what he's trying to do is to compel us to cling to Jesus, to realize that he's our only hope and to walk away from him as foolishness. Now, the the last question, I I don't know that I want to spend too much time here, but I feel like I have to address this. Is The question is, is, who is the we in this section? For if we go on sitting, we saw the sin, this apostasy, this... Um, defection of the faith. We see great warnings. I mean, fire and brimstone, the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. So so what do we do with this? Um, there are three main beliefs over who the we in this section is. Uh, some would say that this is uh, an unbelieving individual who finds himself in the church or amongst the believers, identifies with believers, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. By all accounts, they have given their lives to the Messiah. But as time moves on, they drift away. And they would say, well, they were never really a redeemed person. They they had all of the characteristics from a human perspective. We would say, we thought they were a Christian. In 1 John 2.19, it talks... When they were with us, we thought they were of us, but then they left, and their leaving demonstrated that they weren't actually a part of us, that they weren't believers. So that's that's view number one. View number two would say that this is an individual who was a genuine, truly redeemed Christian, that they believed, they received the Spirit of God, and... They didn't lose their salvation, but they walked away from their salvation, ultimately losing their salvation. So they were Christian, but then they unbecame a Christian. Then there's view number three, that this is dealing with uh, Christians. And it's salvation isn't necessarily even in sight, but it's a warning to the carnal Christian, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, that for the Christian to walk away from Christ, even though they're genuinely a Christian, that they have 
um, they're gonna, the, the wrath of God is waiting for them and they'll be spared, but they're going to lose any sort of heavenly reward or crown or in, anything. They'll be saved, but it will come with great discipline in this life. And so of the options, I, don't, I personally don't think that B, the, um, that a genuine believer got unsaved or lost their salvation. I, I just don't see that being an option. When I read verses like Romans 8, 38 through 39, the, the great passage of um, what can separate us from the love of God, not all, you know, it's um, not, not, nor, uh, I'm trying to try to not quote, but I'll just read it here. Um, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.13 talks about that at the moment that you believed after hearing the gospel, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're told the, the word seal is, is a word that um, is, is undoable. And, and it continues to say that that we were sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption, that it, it's God's um, good faith deposit, that, that he, it's his way of assuring us that you're secure. Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is not a God of unfinished business. He's doing a work if you have a moment of stumbling. or He's not going to quit on you. He's going to continue working in your life. 1 Peter 3 uh, 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved from heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I read all of that. There's so many more. I don't want to bore you guys with reading a bunch of stuff. But there's a preponderance of evidence in, in the New Testament that a person who has come to faith in Christ, they are secure. Jesus in John 17 says, you, you, uh, I think it's John 10, uh, those are in my hand. They, they can't be snatched away. That they're, If you're saved, you're saved. Now, what I didn't deal with is this phrase which is where a lot of people get tripped up and where I, uh, like my dear brothers and sisters in Christ who I love and they love Jesus and they hold that you could, a Christian can lose their salvation. They would come to verse 29 and they would say, um, trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So then that kind of could create some problems um, I don't know that because um, after the last service, I I don't know like I don't necessarily see this as a salvation discussion that's happening, but because of the preponderance of conversation using this around losing salvation over this, hey, this was an individual that was sanctified and they're now they're walking away and all of these warnings. And I know that three weeks ago, I'd mentioned three different aspects of the word sanctification that was used. There's when a person believes you're sanctified positionally before, Father, before the Father. It's a legal term of justification. 
that your standing is in heaven is that you are justified, that what he sees in you is Jesus' final work on the cross, that you are legally declared innocent before the Father. Uh, there's the aspect of sanctification that deals with glorification, which is that one day when we're no longer in these bodies in Christ, our sinful nature will be done away with. We'll have our new nature free of sin, free of stain, and we will no longer struggle with the things that we struggle with in this flesh. And then we have like present day sort of sanctification. It's that moving from our sinfulness towards Christ-likeness in this body, that it's a work in progress. But there's another aspect that's often not, I would say there's a wrench with sanctification. I probably should do more thinking right now than talking. Um, So when I come to this, and I come to the question, and it says, by which he was sanctified and he has insulted the spirit of grace, the question then becomes to me is like, is there any other way that sanctification has ever been used? Is, is sanctification ever referred to an unbeliever? Like, could this be used in the sense of this is an unbeliever in the midst of the Christian community that then departs and then they experience sanctification at some level? So the answer to that question is there is one other place, actually, that sanctification does refer to an unbeliever. And if you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is dealing with like sexual purity, marriage. How, how do we handle the Christian life? Say in particular, like if you were an unbeliever and you were married to an unbeliever, then one of you becomes a Christian. How does that marriage function still? And so in 1 Corinthians 7, I think it's in verse 13 and 14, we read, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and consents to live with her she must not send her husband away, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, I just read that really quickly just to show you. You can go back to Hebrews. I'm not saying that this uh, makes the conversation easier, but so on some level the Bible references an unbeliever being sanctified. What I see in this is if, if you're a believer and you're married to a non-believer and that believer is in the union and you have children, there's some element by which that non-believing spouse receives the spiritual blessing of God because he or she enters into this umbrella of God's blessing. And I'm not saying this resolves any problem. What I'm Ultimately, what I'm saying In this section, it's a warning. It's legitimate. You have to kind of decide which problems you want to deal with. I'm I'm handling the sanctified problem that I think that this is either, it's either both and or either or, that this is applying to those who know Jesus and they walk away. I think discipline is coming. I don't think that they're going to lose their salvation because over the preponderance of evidence in the New Testament, a saved person is a saved person and they will endure, they will make it to heaven, not based on their own works, but based on the work of Christ. If this is an unbeliever and they walk away, they walk away from the only security that was offered. If this was a believer that was to lose their salvation, which I don't see from this sanctified because I, I see this that it could be a non-believer or a non-believer that's receiving some sanctification uh, benefits. But if you want to hold to that they can lose their, their salvation, 
then you're trading this problem for a bigger problem, in my opinion, of what do you do with all of this, these verses that deal with the security of the believer. At the end of the day, I think some of this is semantics. Because what do we do with an individual who's not saved, who's departed from Christ? The person that's walked away from Christ, we reach out to the person in love and, and minister to them and pray that they would return to Christ, that they would receive salvation. If, they, if you hold to that's an individual that was legitimately saved and they walked away, then you do the same thing. My concern with the assurance of salvation and saying an individual can lose their salvation is that it spins everything the wrong way. It begins to lead towards a relationship with God that is dependent on our, our capability, our works, our actions. And my salvation, your salvation, is not contingent on anything that you've done. It's totally contingent on what Christ has done. You can't do anything to save yourself, and once you're saved, there's nothing you can do to unsave yourself. But the saved person will persevere. And with that, I'll move on. So you guys can have homework and wrestle with this on your own. But what I see in this passage is he's trying to compel us towards Christ. And as we look at verse 32, we read, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. This is the idea that there were Christians who by following after Jesus, they were put to death. They entertained society by being thrown into the arena. And he's saying here, remember those former days when the persecution was really bad. You participated in some level, even though it wasn't you being put to death, but they were your brothers and sisters in Christ and you were with them. And remember during those times that when we faced this persecution, it didn't make us weaker, it actually made us stronger, that we united in moving forward. Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So he says a couple things here. He says sympathy towards the prisoners. We're not talking about just common criminals. What we're talking about is prisoners who were in custody because of their allegiance to Jesus. And if you were taken into custody during that time, the government didn't care for your well-being in your, in your arrest. You were dependent upon others caring for you. And if you abandoned Judaism for Christ and you held firm to Christ, you no longer had your family to care for you. You had your brothers and sisters in Christ to care for you. And what he says here is, when they were taken into custody, you showed sympathy to them. You rallied around them. You got them help. It brings up the whole question about Acts 5, which I'm not going to, I don't have time to get into, but they were selling their possessions, giving the proceeds to, um, giving the proceeds to the apostles. And some have suggested that they were doing this to care for their brothers and sisters who were now suffering in prison, and they needed funds to care for them. I don't know. Here it says that their property was being seized. Can you imagine? You own a house. Government comes in and says, hey, that, uh, that title no longer has your name on it. We're confiscating it because you've decided to follow Jesus. This was happening to them, their livelihood. Everything was being taken. But how did they respond? We were told that you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession, a lasting one. Their hope was in the future. 
not in their earthly possessions, but in their heavenly possession that Christ had secured for them. He goes on, verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What is their confidence? Back to verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, don't waver on this. Jesus died for you. It was sufficient. It was once and for all. Don't worry about the persecution. Don't trade or get rid of the confidence that you have. Your confidence is in the work of Christ. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And with this word faith, we're introduced to the great section of Hebrews where we're going to look at all of these uh, people who lived by faith and didn't receive the promise, but they pressed on. No matter how bad it got, they kept their eyes on the ball, which is Christ, and they pressed forward. This great verse, Habakkuk 2.4, my righteous one shall live by faith. It's quoted here, it's quoted in Romans 1.17, it's quoted in Galatians 3.19, I think. Paul, uh, not Paul. Paul wrote this in Romans 1.17, and it was that very verse that Martin Luther was transformed by. He's walking up on his knee, bloody knees up the steps doing penance, trying to get right with God. Midway through as he's meditating on Romans, God impressed on his mind. It is the righteous one who lives by faith. And history tells us this is 500 years ago that the Reformation started. It started with Martin Luther who stood up from those steps and said, this isn't about works. It's about what Jesus did for me and I believe him. This is what he's pressing to. I, I didn't read it, but over in chapter 12, where are we heading? Chapter 12, verse 2. What the author is beginning to impress on our hearts through this warning, through this guide fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told to fix our eyes upon him. Press on. Don't walk away from him. He's our only hope. And so when we look at these great warning passages and we ask the question, what do we do with them? What we do with them, number one, is we give thanks for them. I think it's a wonderful thing that God gives us assurance of salvation in Christ. It kind of rattles us a little bit if we walk away from him. I know in my life, when I was a young Christian, still struggling with the flesh, it was very much my fear that came about from knowing that I wasn't walking with Christ that caused me to question, am I even in Christ and it was these warning passages that actually brought me back to Christ. As we close, there's a book, Honest Evangelism, and it's an Englishman by the name of Rico Tice who shares of a story of going down in Australia. And he writes, I was once in Australia visiting a friend. He took me to a beach on Botany, beach, Botany Bay, so I decided to go for a swim. I was just taking off my shirt when he said, What are you doing? I said, I'm going for a swim. He said, what about those signs? And he pointed me to some of the signs I'd not really noticed. Danger, sharks. With all the confidence of an Englishman abroad, I said, don't be ridiculous, I'll be fine. He said, listen, mate, 200 Australians have died in shark attacks. 
You've got to decide whether those shark signs, shark signs are there to save you or to ruin your fun. You're of age, you decide. I decided not to go for a swim. So when we come to these warning passages, throughout this book, it starts with don't drift away from the word. Don't let your hearts grow hard. Don't abandon Christ for he's your only hope. The purpose of these signs is to keep us on track, to, to keep us on fire. He's, what he's doing is the very thing he's instructing us to do in verse 24. Let us consider how to kick one another in the pants, to fire each other up, to continue on the race, to stimulate each other. And so if you don't know Jesus or you're walking away from Jesus, what he's doing is he's saying, look out because there's no other place for you to go. Your only hope is in him. And for those of us who are in Christ, He's saying, you hold the course. Don't be led astray by your, your flesh. Don't be led astray by the world. Don't let people come and tell you you're foolish. God told us that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. And that's what we're to cling to by faith. So, Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for Jesus coming and dying this sh- shameful death in a public way we thank you that he did it openly we thank you that after his death burial and resurrection he didn't just vanish into the sky but that he appeared multiple times and in multiple ways and allowed people to touch him and to feel him and to see that he was alive and is alive and father we come to the gospel through their testimony and we place our faith in this Jesus who we're told by your word that he died for us, that his death was sufficient for us. Father, I pray for those who maybe haven't come to the place where they have placed their faith in him that they would be able to get whatever they need to to cross that line in the sand. Father, I pray for those of us who know you that we would come to this passage and allow it to rattle us. Allow us to question where our hope is found. I pray that each one of us who knows Christ as Savior, that we would be certain that we are actually clinging to him, that we have placed our faith in him alone, not in our own works, not in our own deeds, but in his work on the cross, we thank you that it was sufficient, it was once and for all, and he stood in our place. He has cleansed us in our innermost being, our consciences, so that we could serve and worship you. And so, Father, we thank you, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.